Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening and welcome to episode 00002140 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm going to be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from Triple R World Headquarters at the end of the 96th line, which of course is on the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and to any mob listening out there at the moment, wherever you may be, and to mob everywhere, including you, no matter what your background. Thank you to Vaughny for an excellent episode of Double Bounce. He's going to take a few weeks off, so we'll miss him, but uh, you can always go back and listen to today's show via rrr.org.au to hear his tunage, his eclectic mix, and his excellent knowledge of music of all sorts presenting to you, not via a playlist, but in real time, a curated playlist, because that's what we do here at Triple R. Now on uh, tonight's show, shortly I'll be joined in studio by Dr. Tamar Hopkins. Uh, it may ring a bell with you, but back in June, a report was released through Inner Community Legal, uh, which showed police actively racially profiled people during the COVID lockdowns of 2020. Tamara is an expert in her field of police accountability, so we'll have a talk with her about the report and police accountability more broadly. And in the second half of the show, uh, a conversation with uh, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service CEO Narita Waite. We'll have a conversation about last week's landmark report by the Uruk Justice Commission into the Child Protection and criminal justice systems, with a particular focus on the latter. Now, where are we since last week? Okay, let's continue to talk about The Voice because it's the only game in town that we're all being asked to contribute towards in 33 days from now. You may have seen uh, this morning or throughout the day that The Age and Nine Newspapers today confirmed what we already knew about the Conservative No campaign. And that is that it is one centred around staking fear through misinformation, also known as the John Howard playbook. To uh, Nine's credit, the story featured on the front pages of both the Sydney Morning Herald and The Aged Age, and it revealed cold callers from a group called Fair Australia, who obviously got their name in the tradition of the likes of the People's Democratic Democratic Republic of North Korea. Um, they had organised um, a bunch of cold callers in a call room and they were briefed and they were asked to identify soft voters. How they got that information, we're not sure. Probably from social media and a whole bunch of uh, focus groups. Anyway, these so-called soft callers were read the following script by uh, the volunteers in the uh, the cold call call centre. Uh, quote, um, don't know where this appeared, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll read this now. 
But I've also heard that some of the people who helped design the voice proposal are campaigning to abolish Australia Day and want to use the voice to push for compensation and reparations through a treaty. All of these things raised a few questions in my mind and made me wonder if there was more to it than meets the eye. End quote. It's kind of the classic sort of, you know, stoking fear. It plays to their slogan, if you don't know, vote no. It plays right into that. And so this call campaign is coupled with Peter Dutton coming out on a daily basis and just lobbying unsubstantiated grenades to design, designed to further stoke fear and misdirect such as last week's promise to hold a second referendum. Now, he hasn't come out in the last few days. Actually, maybe that's because of the polling. He thinks that uh, he's got the referendum result in the bag. Uh, Polling at the moment is showing that the Voice Yes campaign is further slipping in the polls, with basically Tasmania being the only state at the moment that has a majority support for the Yes campaign. Uh, Tasmania is one of the crucial states that the Yes campaign will need to be victorious on election night. It's widely assumed that Victoria will come back to the Yes campaign. South Australia is still a very, very 50-50 proposition in terms of the way that pollsters are looking at the matter. So if we we assume that uh, Queensland and Western Australia will vote no, then we must have New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia. And then on top of that, an overall majority of Australians voting yes. There is still a very narrow but real chance that yes can get up, but as I've said previously, it's an uphill battle. Another tier of the Conservative No campaign, and that's the most brutal tier, uh, is the strategy of bot farms, and what I like to call dad trolls, that racially vilify Aboriginal people several times a minute, or vilify anyone that shows any support for the S campaign through the socials, namely through Twitter, Facebook, and even Instagram. Uh, propagating the most overtly racist filth many of us have ever seen in our lifetimes. These people, via the Conservative No campaign, are emboldened. Make no mistake about it. Not everyone who votes no is racist, of course. That would be a ridiculous statement. But what is not a ridiculous statement is that every racist (laughs) will vote no. Let me assure you of that. And of course, all this filters down into the way everyday people and the lives of First Nations people interact with the real world wherever we go. It is the main topic of conversation and it is exhausting. In the lead up to October 14, all I ask people that listen to this show, wherever you might be in Australia, is to use critical thought. And may I plant a seed in the way of three questions when it comes to stimulating the process in relation to this matter. What would be good is over the next 33 days is to ask yourself three questions. Take a time, take a quiet moment to yourself, sit down without fear of thought or favour 
or being slammed for thinking a certain way and ask yourself the following questions. What is the worst that can happen if the yes vote is successful? So ruminate on that one for a bit. Second question, what are the political motivations of the no campaign led by Peter Dutton? And the third question, what does the, ba- what does the way this debate is being conducted say about modern Australia and its relationship with First Peoples of this land? Now, like I said, you've got 33 days to take a quiet moment and ask yourself those questions, and hopefully they will stimulate it. A process around thinking about the issues related to this referendum in a critical matter, away from the noise, so you, you can let your own conscience dictate which way you will vote. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, to our first guest, uh, there continues to be a massive issue when it comes to police accountability in this state, now known as Victoria. Uh, Particularly under the Andrews government, as a way of cutting off attacks on law enforcement, an area traditionally seen as the strong suit of the Liberal Party in the state, we have seen year-on-year Victoria police receiving records amount of funding um, under the guise of go hard on crime. Uh, Funding, which is unchecked and unaccounted for. There are reports out on that. And and there's also a complete lack of oversight from any sort of independent authority on police accountability in this state um, in terms of what is right and what is justified. And it's important that we continue to put the spotlight on Victoria Police and what is happening here, including at the end of the day, what is happening to the people most affected by Victoria Police. But one person who has been looking particularly at the issue of racial profiling by by Victoria Police is our first guest this evening, Dr Tamar, I'm sorry, Dr Tamar Tamar Hopkins has been working in the area of police accountability and racism since 2005. She was the founding lawyer of the Police Accountability Project at Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre in Melbourne and she is the lead researcher of this report police COVID-19 in Victoria, exploring the impact of perceived race in the issuing of COVID-19 fines during 2020. And I'm very pleased to say that Tamara is in the studio with us now. Welcome. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. It's good to see you. Um, Firstly, before we get into what the report found, which came out in in June, like we said, tell us about some of the methodology that you used to, to develop the report. Yeah, so studying racial profiling in Victoria is really hard because the police don't publish data routinely about their daily interactions with the public, um, despite over 10 years of agitation from the community for the police to release this kind of data. So um, so tracking what police are actually doing is quite a challenge. And um, the way this report um, handled this issue was by... FOIing police fines, um, COVID fines issued during 2020. Now, looking at COVID fines is is not the best way of analysing racial profiling because fines are um, produced when someone has committed an offence and racial profiling is tracking the unjustified law enforcement attention on individuals 
who haven't committed an offence. So we needed to think really carefully about how we were going to analyse these fines in order to assess whether or not there was racial profiling going on. So we we had a, a number of methodologies that we used in order to assess um, whether or not racial profiling could be seen in the fine data. Um, so if I can go through go what those it. are. Um, the the first one is just looking at the disproportionality rates of who of, of fines, who's getting fined. And what we were able to show is that African, Middle East and appearing people were being issued with four times as many fines as you would expect from their proportion in the population. So that sends a bit of a signal that there's an issue going on here. It doesn't locate clearly racial profiling, but it but sends a, a very flag. strong red flag that yep. there's an issue. Um, and there's a same, the same thing was that First Nations people were being issued with 2.5 times um, the number of COVID fines as you'd expect from their population size. So again, another big red flag. So that was kind of the, you know, the first um, slice looking at what was going on. But our, our um, key methodology uh, to try and assess whether there was racial profiling was to look at um, the, the different types of fines that were being dif- issued to different racial groups. Now, it's, I'm sure your listeners are well, they're probably aware that Victoria Police actually um, tracks racial appearance data in um, fines that it issues, particularly racial um, COVID-19 fines. It certainly tracked racial appearance when it was doing that. It also tracks racial appearance when it conducts field contacts and searches without warrants. So we, we ha- actually have this kind of data if you can FOI it and spend the months and years I was going to say, how, to... How, how difficult was it to um, FOI it? It's, it's, very, it's very challenging. Um, you need to FOI it. They delay and they delay, and so have to take them to VCAT, um, issue proceedings in VCAT to try and speed up the process, and eventually they produce the data for a large amount of money. But Just reminding people, <laughs> FOI stands for Freedom of Information, That's and right. it's never been harder to get to get yeah. off. it's it's really crazy it's it's so it's particularly crazy at this point so um yeah so what we were able to do is um, extract 37,000 fines that were issued during the during 2020 and analyze them by racial appearance and also fine type so um, what we could see was that there were um, fines that were being issued when someone was um, not wearing a face mask mm-hmm. and there were fines that were being issued when people were outside their f- five kilometre radius or not out for the five reasons that people were allowed out during that COVID period. Um, and so what, you'll, what you can imagine is that when someone is required to wear a mask and they're not wearing a mask, that is visually apparent to a police officer. They don't need to go up and ask questions. They can, it's prima facie an offence unless yep. they've got a, a good excuse. Whereas finding out if someone is within their five kilometre radius or they're out for, the, for a particular reason requires officers to question that person to yes. identify whether an offence has been committed. So that becomes our, um, our way of differentiating between the kinds of how Victoria Police are treating racial groups differently. Like who are they issuing more of these fines to depending on whether they're visually apparent or they require questioning. And what we found was um, statistically significant evidence 
that the police were more likely to find people of African Middle Eastern appearance for offences involving questioning compared with visible offences. So we were we can conclude from that finding that Victoria Police were engaged in racial profiling during this period. Was that finding shocking to you or was it expected or did you go in with a clear mindset? Um, I, it's not shocking to me. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't surprising. Um, I guess... I guess what was interesting about this is that we weren't sure if we would um, get any kind of findings using this particular methodology of looking at looking at data after a fine has been issued. It's pretty kind of novel. like the first. It's kind of like the first, or well, certainly the first in Australia. I can imagine it's what, one of the first in the world, perhaps. That's right. Yeah. Using this kind of methodology yeah, yeah. to to see if you can sort of identify a difference. That's right. So we didn't have any idea if we were going to be able to find anything. So so that was really interesting. Uh, we were also able to show um, um, uh, that there was actually an uh, Asian people were more likely to be issued or with, um, with fines when they were questioned than white people. However, when we... Um, there was a lot of missing data in this, um, in this data set from Victoria Police. 25, almost 25% of the fines that were issued were missing that racial appearance um, field. Is that just... Um, uh, is that deliberate or an administrative error? I suspect a size that is missing of that amount is indic- indicative that mm-hmm. there hasn't been adequate supervision, there's not adequate checking to ensure that that, that field is entered. So I would say that it's, um, it's, it's, it's certainly, if it's not deliberate, it's certainly designed into the system to allow the police to get away it's, with missing it's what, that form. Perhaps what some would call unconscious bias, perhaps? Um, it, Potentially, if that is could even, be. Even that, if that is even a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um, who knows what was going on in in the minds of the officers who weren't completing those codes. So we can't really tell what was going on because of the size of the missing data. But but it was we were getting these um, clear signals that um, certainly African and Middle Eastern appearance people and potentially Asian people were being racially profiled. Right. And what was uh, Victoria Police's response at the time and what was the response from the government, if any? Well, um, quite surprisingly, um, and and listeners may be aware that on the 8th of May this year, um, the Chief Commissioner of Police issued an apology in in the Europe Justice Commission for um, systemic racial profiling and proposed that they would track outcomes of policing to eliminate um, disproportionate outcomes for for, for racialised groups and First Nations people in particular. So here we have this this, this recognition that policing is discriminatory in this state and a, a, um, a promise to do something about it. And then when we release this report, which demonstrates the existence of racial profiling, um, we get the police are in the, in the media denying... Um, that there's any possibility that racial profiling could be occurring. The, the, res- the response to the report couldn't have been any more different to what the Chief Commissioner presented at Uruk Justice Commission, couldn't it? It was extraordinary. It was it was absolutely mind-boggling. Um, and it really kind of reveals this split in the way Victoria Police um, uh, handles issues of racial discrimination. So what happens is we have 
high-level comments from um, Victoria Police Command and then we have operational comments from the police union that is completely out of step with those with those um, statements from, from command. And I think what we can see here is, is really... The, the way the police operate, we have we have spin at the top saying things that people want to be want want to hear, and we have operational reality coming out of the police union and the association. It makes it very difficult to have a coherent conversation about these matters, because like like you said, the the police union in particular is very reactive when it comes to any sort of criticism of Victoria Police on these matters or any matter. We have the high-level, um, what I would call, uh, sort of reconciliation action plan, sort of mea culpa, that the Chief Commissioner presented at Uruk. And then when the rubber really hits the road and there is evidence of racial profiling, um, there is a complete denial that it mm. occurs. That makes it very difficult to implement any sort of reform when it comes to matters of race and racial profiling for First Nations people, for, 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 for people of brown skin colour, from, from people from, um, uh, of Asian descent, it's, it's very difficult if the police from the very outset is denying that it's happening. So where do we go from here? Yeah, it's it's very uh, sobering realizing the way the police react to these um, these kinds of findings, and I think one of the really interesting things is that 10 years ago Victoria Police were forced to acknowledge that um, racial profiling was occurring in the community and um, introduced a 10-year plan through uh, a report called Equality is Not the Same, which was designed to deal with issues of racial profiling. And um, that clearly from these findings, that process, that 10-year process has achieved nothing, nothing. And so... I guess what this really sends alarm bells about is that we now have police command making commitments towards doing something about systemic racism and yet we've seen 10 years ago those same commitments being made and um, the police failing to initiate anything that changes their business as usual practices on the street. Well, former Police Commissioner Ken Lay conceded back in 2013 that racial profiling had occurred within the force and, like you said, vowed to stamp it out. Um, what uh, the current Chief Commissioner, Shane Patton, presented to Uruk, and he said the following, the following, quote, I know Victoria Police has caused harm in the past, unfortunately continues to do so in the present he told the Uruk Justice Commission. He went on to say, as an organisation, we continue to make necessary changes and improvement and it's a firm requirement of mine that we will continually strive to do better. That doesn't seem to meet with the reality of the response to this report or anything that we've seen or haven't seen since uh, his presentation to the Uruk Justice Commission. Mm, Absolutely, absolutely. And when we have a look at what Ken Lay and the Victoria Police did in response to um, the its commitment to do something to racial profiling 10 years ago, what we see is that it set up a division within Victoria Police, the Priority Community Division, whose job was to engage in stakeholder consultations. And it went into overdrive, setting up 
um, about 10 different committees where it met with the community on a regular basis to consult with them. And that what we see is that rather than any operational changes that change what the police do, instead they go into a process of setting up consultative committees where talk happens and high-level discussions that go nowhere um, it is, it seems the, to be the result. It's the Sir Humphrey response to any sort of political crisis. Exactly. Um, yeah. Look, thank you so much for your work in this. Uh, we'll, in our small way, we'll try and keep it on, on the agenda because uh, it needs to be kept on the agenda. Uh, in terms of, before I let you go, in terms of accountability for, for the police force, more broadly in this state. There are calls now for uh, an ombudsman to, to oversee the Victoria Police. They are suggesting, and the, and the government's suggesting, that we just need to strengthen IBAC a little bit. Um, what would an ombudsman do to um, help with accountability in this area? Yeah, so at the moment we've got IBAC uh, managing occasional police complaints by investigating less than 1% of all complaints made to it and farming the rest of them back down to Victoria Police. So it's really not engaged in any oversight at all, really, of, of complaint investigation. What the community are calling for is a police ombudsman who will investigate com all complaints made about Victoria Police independently of Victoria Police and engage in an investigation process that puts the complainant at the centre of the investigation process, um, provides natural justice to those complainants and um, and is very much, it, it's a totally different model than we see IBAC um, performing at the moment. So we're really delighted to see the UROC Commission make recommendations along the lines that the community have been calling for for, for, for decades now and we're sort of hopeful there's some space here. Well, if you stick around and listen to the show, you'll hear more about it um, when I play the uh, interview I recorded earlier with uh, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service CEO Narita Waite. Uh, we touch on these matters as well. But for the time being, Dr Tamar Hopkins, thank you so much for coming in. No problem. Thanks for having me. Triple R. Uh, last Late last week, I pre-recorded a discussion that I had with CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, uh, Narita Waite, who uh, was initially responding to the uh, landmark report, which was the Europe Justice Commission report into child protection system and the criminal justice system. So what you're about to hear is my conversation with her about that. And we also talk about a thing um, called Pockham's Law, which is being pushed uh, hard by the family of Yorta Yorta woman Veronica Nelson, who you may remember died New Year's Day at Dane Phyllis Frost Centre in a cell alone by herself. Pockham's Law relates to the reform of bail laws in this state to ensure that this doesn't happen again. So without further ado, let's play that interview. Narita Waite, welcome back to The Mission. Thank you. What was your initial reaction to the Uruk Justice Commission report into the child and protection and criminal justice systems, which came out last week? Um, I must say that um, I was nervous ahead of it coming out because you never know um, what's going to be um, in those types of reports. But um, upon reading it, um, my first um, sort of initial reaction was really about 
um, how proud I was that um, those people who came and spoke their truth actually have them reflected in that report and you see them translated into recommendations. Um, and it just really showed the strength and resilience of our communities that they continue to show up and stand up. Um, and hopefully this report will actually translate into meaningful action. One thing that struck me about the, the report was just how thorough it was. Um, and how much effort the commission had put into making sure that they captured not only verbatim what a lot of the people um, who came along and gave testimony and submitted to the commission had put down, but they also made sure that um, the, the framework in which those people were able to tell their truth was solid, based on evidence, based within a, um, an historical line, and that really, for me, contextualised what people were telling the commission, and it, and it made makes the report a really, you know, as far as I can see, an extremely rock solid, watertight report. And therefore, the recommendations, um, the forty six recommendations, are something that government must take seriously. It is, um, you know. Uh, certainly they didn't leave uh, a stone unturned. They've talked to urgent reform as well as system transformation. But like you said, also um, really talked to the history of how both the child protection and the criminal legal system um, have been used um, to harm Aboriginal communities, um, whether, you know, we look through massacres, missions, forced labour camps, assimilation policy, slavery and the stolen generations, um, all of those um, experiences um, are echoed in the report and you see how they come into the everyday experience of Aboriginal communities today. Um, and it's really vital reading for every Victorian. This is not just for the Victorian government to read, you know, ministers and departmental heads. It's really for all of Victoria to read because it tells you the story that our history books don't. Oh, as soon as the, as soon as the commission was announced um, uh, all those years ago, it seems, <laughs> I, I automatically thought, well, whatever comes out of the commission, um, surely there's something for the Victorian curriculum within all this. You know, there's, there is so much that is going to come out of the commission that will be a great learning tool um, for, for students for generations to come. I, I hope that comes out of the commission at some point too. What do you reckon? Well, um, most people will be obviously caught up in a lot of substantive material in the report, but at the very end, it actually talks to um, sort of record-keeping um, information sharing, but also um, how their material should be used in future. So I'm thinking that some enterprising minds might pick those pieces up um, and really push the Victorian government to also consider um, how that can be reflected in our curriculum. Well, you've, there's a buck to be made in it, Narita, so maybe, you know, we can talk off air about that at some point. <laughs> um, getting... I'm, I'm happy to provide advice, but I yeah. think I'm a little busy. Uh, well, money, money talks, that's all I'm going to say. Um... That's for sure. <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the good things that is actually in the report, is it talks about how we can actually reset those relationships around yes. um, resourcing um, and talks about oversight and accountability mechanisms um, and really goes down to that deeper level of detail that we've needed for quite some time now. Well, let's talk about oversight. Uh, Val's for, for a long time has been calling for 
oversight of the police in the form of a police ombudsman. Uh, that was one of the recommendations that uh, came out of the uh, report last week. Uh, maybe just for the listeners, ex- explain what why we need independent oversight and then what uh, a police ombudsman role and responsibility would be in relation to that. Mm-hmm. So systemic racism in Victoria Police impacts Aboriginal communities on a daily basis and it manifests itself in a way that Aboriginal people are over-policed, over-represented in police custody and underserved when they seek assistance from police. Um, You know, I can't recall a year or a month um, or a week, really, where we haven't heard of um, abuses of police power, where we haven't heard that um, our women have tried to go to them for help, they've experienced family violence and been rejected. Um, so this isn't something that um, is just um, something people make up. It is it's a reality academic. in an everyday experience. Um, we also know that the continuing over-policing of <clears throat> our people actually leads to high incarceration rates, which therefore then leads to higher deaths in custody. Um, and addressing these deep-seated problems actually requires an effective system of police oversight, which prevents misconduct from occurring and holds police to account when it does take place. And Victoria's police system, police oversight system falls drastically drastically short of achieving these goals. At the moment, if you make a police complaint, um, it will not be investigated by police. Over 90% of them are handed back to Victoria Police to investigate themselves. Um, I think anybody with a logical brain can understand that police investigating themselves is an issue. Often, (laughs) Often the complaint goes back to the police station where the complaint was made or the the offence or the, the misdemeanour occurred? Correct. Or the colleague um, who works with the person who you're complaining about, um, the level of conflict um, in the way that they're referred back, um, you just can't understate it. Um, and this is really detrimental because can you imagine um, you've, you know, you've done, you've had a horrible abuse of power um, and you're stepping up to complain about that and then the colleague who was there the time it happened rocks up to your door to investigate it? Like, how can you have trust or confidence in that system and how do you not feel further broken down um, and less likely to complain or engage with police? I mean, uh, Vals has been calling for this for a long time. There have been various other groups that have been calling for it for a long time as well. What yes. noises, if any, are the government making in relation to a reform like this? Um, they've said that um, they are more interested in how they can strengthen IBAC, um, mm-hmm. which is the independent broad-based anti-corruption commission. Um, the URIC report is scathing in that respect um, and it's really clear that that won't amount to effective police oversight and instead have told the Victorian government that they need to be looking to the pony model, which is something that um, Vals and other advocates um, have been pushing for quite some time now. Well, it's a case of watch this space. The Uruk Justice Commission has given the government 12 months to not respond to the recommendations, but to implement the recommendations. And uh, I saw that Dan Andrews last week was casting doubt on the government's ability to do that. So we'll watch this space and advocates like Vals and uh, uh, other organisations will um, no doubt keep on their back. Um, at the centre of uh, the the Europe Justice Commission report is uh, the idea of uh, self-determination. 
what does self-determination look like when it comes to the criminal justice space in particular? Um, big question. It is, it is a big question, uh, and it's something that um, means self-determination means lots of different things for lots of different people. Um, for Victorian government, it means consultation. Um, for Aboriginal community, it goes between working in partnership to actual self-governance. Yeah. Um, so just acknowledging that sort of the different understandings. Um, from my perspective, um, one thing that I was happy to see in the York report is them taught to enacting self-determination in terms of system design um, and transformational change to systems that um, were designed to wipe us out. Um, that means... Um, looking at what does a legal system based on First Nations law and culture look like? Um, you know, um, how can we achieve a plural legal system? Um, how can we address the legacy of colonisation um, and the challenges that we face day by day? Um, but also, how does that path, how do we walk down that path? Because you're not going to overturn the justice system in one day, let's be honest. Um, we've already heard in the cultural review, for example, um, that they expect that to take 10 years to achieve. Um, certainly um, trying to do that to the whole system um, will be something that hopefully happens in my lifetime, um, but is not likely to happen in three years. So we need to start walking down that path, and I believe we can do that by utilising the treaty process. So it's going to take more than cultural awareness training and uh, reconciliation action plans, is what you're saying? I I, I do not know why we are still talking about reconcilia reconciliation action plans or training. Um, why do we need to keep falling back on those when we know they don't work? There's evidence um, to suggest that. Um, and there's also clear asks that we move beyond those and into actually making sure that our communities are dictating and forming the systems um, that relate to them. Surely, surely you feel culturally safe, though, Narita, when you walk um, into a prison and you see the Aboriginal flag flying out the front. No, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't. Um, I, and I mean that's one thing that uh, I think again is highlighted in the report that um, just talking about training, reconciliation, action plans is not enough that you need to understand the environment. I mean, one thing that I would have liked to see included in the report um, is urging the Victorian government to look at decarceration alternatives, mm -hmm. particularly noting that they talked about the harms that are created in the incarceration environment, but there were some good things in there in terms of pointing to the cultural review, um, but also the need to not detain an incarcerated child who's under the age of 16. Um, for us, um, that was really important. You're listening to The Mission on 102.7 3RRFM. My name's Daniel. I'm speaking to the CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Narita Waite. Uh, another area of urgent reform, of course, is uh, around bail laws. We've spoken mm -hmm. about it before on this program. Uh, we've seen that the uh, draconian bail laws that were brought in as a result of the, that Burke Street tragedy have resulted in an exponential increase of, uh, of Aboriginal people in incarceration, um, usually quite often without charge. The government, through the Attorney-General Jacqueline Symes, has put forward um, reforms in this area. Um, but 
Veronica Nelson's family, the the uh, Yorta Yorta woman that died tragically um, by herself in a cell at a uh, Dame Judas Frost uh, Centre uh, back in 2020, um, their family is calling for more than what the government is offering. So can you just run us through what it is that the government has on offer and what um, Pokem, Pokem's Law... Pockham's Law. Pockham's Law, thank you very much. Um, what that is being... What, what that is asking of the government. Yes, um, sure. So uh, in terms... First of all, can we just acknowledge that... Um, it is incredible what Veronica's family have done um, to fight for change. Um, already we've seen um, Dame Phyllis Frost and Taryn Gower move to a public health system um, and away for privatised healthcare. We've seen changes into OSTP care um, and now we're looking at changes in the bail laws. Um, they have certainly honoured um, Veronica in that fight um, and I just want to honour their work. Um Second of all, um, what um, Veronica's family is asking in Pockham's Law is what advocates and have been asking for for quite some time and certainly what the government knew per Yurok's report back in 2018 needed to be achieved. So removing the presumption against bail, granting access to bail unless there is a serious and immediate safety risk, removing all bail offences, not just two, and ensuring that a person is not reminded they are unlikely to receive a sentence of imprisonment. These things are logical. These things are fair. These things ensure that our bail system does not breach human rights. Um, unfortunately, Pockham's Law has not been implemented through the Victorian Bail Bill. Um, that currently was debated in the lower house. It's now gone up to the upper house. Um, and I expect that debate to continue in early, mid-October. Mm -hmm. We've seen the Greens and Liberals both table amendments in the lower house, um, and we assume they'll try that again in the upper house. Um, at the moment, those amendments are focused on a statutory review, which is something that we're certainly advocated for, noting what's in the Europe report about the fact that government ignored concerns time and time again. Um, well, they, they had they had information um, back in 2018 that, that showed that the bail reform laws were having an adverse effect on not only the Aboriginal community but other communities as well, and they yes, decided to do nothing they knew about it. in 2017, even before, even before they that. put the bill in place, wow. that there would be unintended consequences. Um, and certainly by 2018, they were starting to see those actual real-life results. Since then, um, they've known um, right up until Veronica died um, in on New Year's Eve, um, sorry, New Year's Day um, in 2020, that the bail laws were affecting Aboriginal women in particular. Um, Veronica's death was entirely preventable had the government acted on those changes that needed to occur. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, an absolute tragedy, an urgent area of reform and advocates like you and uh, Veronica's family are not going to let go until we get some serious traction on this. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see people die in, in custody. Um, I think we've covered all the main points that we wanted to cover, Narita, in, in this conversation, Great. except for one. Um, and that is that um, you have recently been elected to the First People's Assembly of Victoria, which, of course, is a huge honour, and well done, you. Um, Thank you. What have you made of it all so far? 
Um, look, I stood um, for the First Peoples Assembly this year because um, I felt like I had some skills and expertise that could be useful as we move towards creating a treaty, particularly interim agreements. Um, and also personally, I think I needed to be able to work on something transformational because much of what I do here um, is at that hard end. Yes. Um, and so doing something in the positive light um, just sort of helps manage um, the trauma in a sense. Um, and it has been the most exciting um, and the most rewarding work, um, aside from what we do for families in death in custody. Um, I'm really excited about the people that we have on board. I think they're all excellent. I think it's a good I crew. love that they have diverse opinions yeah. and different skills. Um, and I think that they will take um, what's in the UROC report, particularly around transformational change, utilising interim agreements and, and treaty um, to transform the system to heart, um, and that'll certainly be something they focus on over the next 12 to 24 months. And, of course, it's all a, um, a beacon to the rest of the country, what we're doing here in Victoria around treaty and truth. Um, I just hope that um, whatever happens with the referendum, that uh, people take note of what's happening in this place because what is happening here is innovative for this country and, and in some instances um, internationally as well. And um, Definitely. And that they also see, Daniel, that what's happening here in Victoria isn't just benefiting Victorian Aboriginal communities, it's benefiting Victoria as a whole. When we create better systems, it helps everyone. Um, and that's something that our community's been doing for generations and will continue to do. Um, and it just shows that voice isn't a threat, it's a benefit. It's something you should want, um, something that should then lead you down the path of truth and treaty. Yep. It's in our blood. We can't help but make things better for everyone. <laughs> That's okay. pretty much it. Our sweetness is definitely our weakness. Yes, yes. Some of us are or more sour than sweet, but... Um... Overall, you know, you've got to have the three combinations. You could have salt, you could have um, sour, and you could have sweet. Um, and uh, uh, our crew community is all those things at various different times, and it adds to the rich tapestry of this place that is now known as uh, Victoria. Um, Narita, thank you so much for your time. Once again, uh, we'll stay in touch. There's so much going on. Um, best of luck with the assembly and best of luck with absolutely everything else as well. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.